Hello, it's Lucy here. Just a quick note to say that this podcast was recorded prior to the news that Paul Clark was stepping down as the Ocado CTO. I'm Professor Lucy Rogers, and this is the expansion pack for our Future of Food episode. If you've not heard this already, get downloading. Head to designspark.com forward slash podcasts to hear it and the rest of series two. This week, I'm talking to Ocado's Chief Technology Officer, Paul Clark, about the work they're doing for the future of food. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Can you introduce yourself a bit, please? Certainly, Lucy. Thank you for having me on the show. So... As Chief Technology Officer at Ocado, I'm responsible for driving the the technology there. I've been doing that for the last 14 and a half years. Originally, I studied physics and then went into the computer industry. And outside of Ocado, I wear quite a few different hats, such as sitting on the AI Council, the Robotics Growth Partnership, National Food Strategy, and now the Innovation Expert Group. Wow. So what do you see as being the big challenges for the future of food, food production, food distribution, that sort of thing? Well, if you think recently, I think the, the, the pandemic has shown you know, just how important uh, health, diet, uh, obesity and things like that are in, in terms of dealing with that um, a virus. But there are other bigger challenges that we face in terms of the footprint of conventional um, uh, agriculture, the fact that, you know, as we head towards trying to solve our net zero and sustainable development goals, there's lots that we have to do there. And and how we grow our food, you know, how we find new ways to turn photons into calories and protein uh, <laughs> is something that we need to exercise our minds on. And that's one of the key issues that the National Food Strategy is focused on along with, you know, healthy eating and nutrition and affordable food and and things like that. Ocado are investing in vertical farming. So what are the attractions of this technology for you? Well, uh, as I I just said, you know, as one of the ways in which we find uh, sort of uh, ways to turn sunlight into uh, calories and protein, but to do it with uh, a lower footprint, you know, in terms of the impact that it has on our environment. Uh, vertical farming is is one of those tools that we can deploy. It allows us to grow produce with 5% of the water uh, without all the kind of uh, impacts like soil erosion and water pollution, air pollution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it produces products that are better than organic, no pesticides. You know, if you grow it closer to the consumer, less food miles. And and also allows you to sort of grow on demand. You know, you can tune what people will want to when it comes ripe, and that obviously reduces food waste, which is another really important thing. And, and so, therefore, it's it's really about both its efficiency, but also uh, about the impact that it has on the environment. So you're not just reducing the physical footprint with vertical farming of how much land you need, but it's everything else that we're using the water the nutrients whatever and yeah as you say food miles hadn't really thought of that yeah and if you i suppose another part of our vision is um you know we build huge automated warehouses we're now building them around the world for our platform customers and uh, if you can co-locate a vertical farm next to um a warehouse perhaps one that's closer to the to the consumer uh, and then if you can combine that uh with 
uh, robotic technology for dark kitchens, which is an investment we made a couple of years ago now. Hang on, you said dark kitchens. What's one of them? So uh, a dark kitchen is um, it's it's built, I think, on the concept of a dark store. People talk about dark stores, which are which are stores which perhaps don't you know not for humans, but they're for robots to go around you know collecting goods. Well, so they don't need light. You don't need light. Um, well, a dark kitchen is one where robots are assembling food or cooking meals at, without humans being involved. And um, so, like, yeah, as you rightly say, they don't need to have the lights on. Uh-huh. Then you've got a really interesting food machine. You can potentially go from you know plant to kitchen table in maybe you know a couple of hours. And unless you live on a farm, that is freshness that you'll probably never experience. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of the, the vision, really. All this must be, I mean, it's innovative, a lot of this. So how are you managing to to accelerate and, and get rid of the risks with all this innovation? Well, we've always been very self-sufficient when it comes to innovation. We've always built pretty much everything in-house. And uh, one of the ways uh, in which we accelerate innovation is the use of models. Um, so simulation models, emulation, uh, visualization and and then digital twins. Mm-hmm. You know they're they're very much in the zeitgeist at the moment. There's a lot of discussion about the role that they can play in 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 helping us in lots of different ways. Uh, but they've certainly they're core to what we do. You know we obviously have robot labs, we have maker labs, and then my division is kind of at the heart of of Ocado's innovation factory. And what we focus on actually is is doing everything that isn't grocery. So you know the core engineering teams are building our, our platforms for online grocery delivery and rolling those out around the world. But what my division, Octo, or the Office of the CTO, focuses on is really moving all sorts of other atoms around in very efficient ways. But that also includes spin-out applications into areas like uh, vertical farming. So you're not just a grocery company? Absolutely not. No, I mean it's like an onion model. If the the outside layer that has kind of peeled off now is uh, is the online grocery bi- uh, business, which we still own fifty percent of the world's largest online only grocery retailer. We sold the other half to Marks and Spencers, uh, and that went live uh, in September. Mm-hmm. If you dig down another layer, you see what we've always been, which is a technology business, and then the platform business that we've become more recently. But take another layer off, and you find this innovation factory, which is just good at solving really hard problems using a mixture of technologies like simulation and robotics and machine learning and IoT and uh, cloud computing. And that's a kind of a a cauldron of technologies that we cook with. And I suppose we try and come up with exciting recipes. (laughs) Can we just go back to that digital twin? Would you mind explaining what that is, please? Sure. So imagine you want to, you build a a model of something like, um, it could be an aircraft, you know, and you build a model of the engines and of the airframe and the the control surfaces. And now, you know, you assemble that all together. Now you've got a a model of of an aircraft. Mm -hmm. But then you might want to... um, Take it a step further and and build you know a mo- a model of the whole aviation industry. So now you need to do things like model the uh, uh, airlines and the airports and customer behaviour. And what makes that sort of uh, more complex model into a digital twin is taking all of the data from those real world things, if you mm-hmm. like, systems, uh, machines people uh, and feeding those data into uh, a simulation or a series of simulation simulations which are all joined up 
and using those to derive insights and optimizations. And then you send those back into the physical world to try and optimize, you know, the control systems and uh, for for those uh, physical entities. And what makes a true digital twin rather than just a simulation is that virtuous circle of, of data flowing towards the model and then optimizations and insights flowing back. And we drive that virtuous circle around as fast as you can. And the really exciting thing is to start attaching, you know, AI and machine learning models to those digital twins and let them loose to explore optimizations that are probably beyond what humans can come up with. So in my mind, I've now got a, like a Scalextrix track uh, with all these model cars on uh, that represent a motorway, but all the, the sensors on the motorway telling me what speed the traffic's doing so I could actually put speed limits on or send the AA out or whatever if there's a broken down car so that the yeah the the real life is mimicked by the model but the model helps influence the real life absolutely so for example you might build a digital twin of the road network in a city like london you might use it to optimize the timing of traffic lights you might use it to explore new kinds of road topologies that you haven't built yet uh, and generally try and you know reduce congestion see what the impact of roadworks in a particular location would be, you know, different kind of traffic uh, strategies. And you can do all of that in a virtual model, which is obviously a lot less disruption than, (laughs) you know, trying to do those experiments within the real city. So heading back to the vertical farming and and the, the, the innovation you're doing with that, what infrastructure is actually going to be needed for this? Well, we have to collect a huge amount of data. So uh, things like sensors, cameras, and and other kinds of data feeds are, are key because uh, these models I've been talking about run on data. The machine learning uh, models that we train uh, run on data. So collecting those data, uh, feeding them in uh, to those models, feeding them uh, from the smart machines into those models, um, is key. We do a lot with mechatronics, you know, kind of where uh, the, the physical and the digital collide, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, manipulators for robots, uh, making, you know, smart machines that move and, and, and controlling their movement in very precise ways. And, and all of the data ends up going to the cloud, really, you know, so there's quite a lot of edge computing that goes on. Yeah. But there's also a lot of centralized sort of storing of that data and, and analyzing them uh, as part of that. And, for example, we build a, a healthcare system for our robots um, that sits in the cloud <laughs> and and looks after swarms of robots in one warehouse, typically 3,000 in a warehouse, and keeps um, trying to keep the swarm of robots in tip-top shape and spotting when they're getting colds and coughs and and, <laughs> and sending them into the you know the equivalent of the doctor surgery uh, before they get sick. Yeah, and uh, and that's very analogous to hopefully what we can do with real patients, you know, in terms of remote telemedicine. So although you're using so much cutting-edge stuff, you're actually at the basics relying on the the basic sensors that we've probably got in our phones or um, you know motion sensors light sensors that are actually quite ubiquitous now absolutely absolutely things like um as you say the the, the little chips that have you know gyros and motion sensors and 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 obviously gps and dgps dgps that's differential gps it's more accurate yeah it's it's sort of down to you know centimeters or even 
you know, parts of centimeters. So very, very accurate for, for those kind of applications where you need that accuracy. You know, these things are becoming cheaper and they're being built into, you know, all sorts of things, including our mobile phones. And it's really that, that sense of fusion, you know, because often what you're doing is wanting to combine signals from lots of different sensors and, and build a better picture, a more precise picture or a more resilient picture of where you are or how fast you're moving or how fast you're, you're cornering or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, kind of at the heart of a lot of the smart machines we build. So thinking more about the future of food, is there anything we're going to have to change as a society with regards to how we eat and what we eat? Well, going back to the pandemic, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's shown us is that, you know, we need to think a lot about scalability, but also about resilience. Mm-hmm. And how do we make our systems uh, more more scalable, resilient, but also more sustainable uh, from a, an environmental impact? And at the start of the pandemic, you know, we lots of questions were asked, and it was realized that we were missing lots of data, but we were also missing lots of smart machines that could perhaps move things around efficiently, manufacture things that were in scarce supplies, mm-hmm. you know, pick up, um, go into areas that, you know, were dangerous for humans and so forth. And I think as part of the uh, the move towards building lots of different kinds of digital twins, one of the ones that I'm particularly involved in uh, is about building a digital twin of our food system. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be part of a much bigger program, which is about building a national digital twin. So lots and lots of digital twins wow. um, yeah. uh, uh, of the UK. And and that, though, is still not big enough. We need to go even further. And, and I think you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is that maybe one day we can build a planetary digital twin. <laughs> so we can, you know, which is modeling not only our environment, obviously, like our weather models do, mm-hmm. but the human systems whose footprint or, or whose impact, if you like, on the environment we need to reduce. And and we also need to find ways to move things around more efficiently. So coming back to food, you know, it's great to grow it, but uh, you've also got to get it, you know, to the customer. And, uh, and another slightly... Uh, crazy project that uh, I spend my time talking to people about is the concept of building an internet of freight. So, you know, physical internets, internets that move atoms rather than electrons around in efficient ways and, you know, drive much greater kind of collaboration and coordination into how things are moved and maybe, you know, vehicles, autonomous vehicles or, or vehicles with drivers in them, but which are carrying freight and people and lots more efficiency there, which is, is important, you know, for because our roads have finite capacity, but also uh, because, uh, as I say, we need to reduce the environmental impact of moving atoms around. I've been listening to you. I'm actually a, a lot more excited and happy about the future of, of where our food's going rather than maybe some of the horror stories that I've heard before. So thanks ever so much, Paul. That's great. Pleasure. Thanks for joining me. And thanks to Paul for a fascinating interview. For more episodes, makes and other great content, head to designspark.com forward slash podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe and tell a friend. No, really, do that. It helps. Thank you. Thank you.